Thank you for listening to the Paradigm Podcast. Paradigm is a young adult ministry that exists to see lives changed by Jesus. For more information about Paradigm, go to ParadigmKC.com. We hope this message is inspiring and life-changing. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be at tonight. If you're new to the Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians is in the second part of your Bible. Uh, the Bible's a little bit different, and so it's written by a lot of different people over a long period of time, and, uh, and even like when you're navigating this thing, it can be a little bit challenging. So uh, like there's two books with the same name, Corinthians, um, because there are actually some letters that have been preserved throughout history, and we're looking at the first book, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and so head towards the back of your Bible or head towards the bottom of your list, and you're going to find 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and hey, I just want to say thank y'all for, for meeting here. I don't know what you had to do to find this place. So, some of y'all probably rolled in over the other building. You're like, there's a lot of little kids around here. This ain't paradigm, right? You know, and um, so we are doing what's called vacation Bible school, and uh, that's just kind of a, a church phrase that, that means we're, we're trying to share the word of God with kids in a really fun, exciting, and concentrated way. And so thank you for your flexibility uh, just to be able to gather here and for all those that have made tonight happen uh, in a different location. Next week, if this is your first time, we'll actually be back at that big building that's over just across the the way over there. And so thank you for your flexibility. Uh, We are kicking off a new series tonight called Deconstruction. All right, good. Somebody came in with some doubts tonight. They're fired up. And what I want to do real quick is I just want to define what I mean by deconstruction. So I don't know if you picked up on this, but when words become kind of buzzwords, they mean a lot of different things. And so like you can put in hashtag deconstruction on your social feeds and you'll probably find all kinds of things. You'll, you'll find people deconstructing from politics, from uh, their nationality, from their gender. You'll find people deconstructing from their faith. You'll find deconstruction all over the place. And uh, it really has its roots back to this, this French philosopher, if you care to know this a 20th century French philosopher named Jacques Derrida. And he introduced this ideology of deconstruction where you just begin to pull apart certain arguments and conversations and words and ideas and really try to figure out what are the holes in those arguments and in their logic. And so it's been a little bit hijacked and it's morphed a little bit. And so tonight, just to try to bring all of us on the same page, I want to give you a working definition. I think this will be helpful for our time together as we talk about this. So here's deconstruction. If you're taking notes, you can just write this down. It is taking apart and examining our practices and beliefs to determine their truthfulness, usefulness, and impact. I don't know if you've come in here tonight and and you want your beliefs to impact your life. I don't know if you've come in here tonight and you want your beliefs to have purpose and meaning in your life. But if you have, you're in a good place because I don't know about you, I don't want to waste my life. And I don't want to spend my wheels putting my faith in something that never really impacts my life. And I did that for a large part of my life. Like I would, I would give lip service to some spiritual things, but when I really started like examining my life and measuring them up according to the standard and the experience that I read about, mainly in the Bible, I saw inconsistencies. And here's what I learned, man. If a, if a faith doesn't work, then it's not worth having. 
And, and here's what I want to just commit to you, that Jesus has worked profoundly in my life as I've examined the things that he's done in my life and as I've examined the, the truths that are found in his word and as I examined history, I found quite a bit of confidence and I have a great experience about how my belief has impacted my life, but I've had to go through these cycles of deconstruction from time to time. And really what we want to do is we want to begin the conversation and give you opportunity to ask questions that may be rolling around in your heart, in your mind about your faith. Like maybe you've come in here and you've been through something difficult and it caused you to really evaluate, is God still good? Maybe you started reading some things and you started learning some theologies that were just a little bit unsettling and you're like, wait, wait, it says this here, but what is that? How does that reconcile with this thing over here? And maybe you have questions and listen. The church should be the safest place to ask questions. But that's not true. That, that's not always everybody's experience, right? Like some of you, the reason why you're in a season of deconstruction is because you ask questions at a church. And they were like, if you doubt, then you can't be a disciple of his. If you have questions, then you need to get out. We don't have time to process all of that. You just got to shut up and believe, Right? And that's been somebody's and some people's approach to this thing called faith, but that's not what we find in the scripture. That deconstruction and questions and doubts, that's typically a part of the normal Christian experience, and we want to provide you guys an opportunity to be able to process some of those questions. And I just ask that you would make a commitment to do something with your doubts, that you would make a commitment to do something with your deconstruction, if you will. And so you heard earlier, uh, we're putting together a Q&A. We have a, a really incredible person that's a part of our church. He's an engineer at Black and & Veatch, and, uh, and he also loves Jesus. And those things can move together. You can be very, very intelligent and effective and love Jesus too, okay? And he's gonna answer some questions, and, and he's gonna be kind of our resident uh, apologist, if you will, or expert, and he's gonna field those questions at these Q&As, and so we want you to participate in that sort of deal. So, and so what I'm trying to get to is that deconstruction, it is a necessary thing. It's a normal thing. In fact, when we read the words of Jesus, you find him deconstructing things. Like even Jesus deconstructed something. You heard, you'll see him in like one of his most famous speeches. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and he says things like this. You've heard it said this way, but I say to you, and what he's doing is he is deconstructing some of the popular beliefs of the day, and then he's reconstructing what is supposed to be fitting in his way. That Jesus, he will deconstruct things in your life, but always for the purpose of reconstructing something in your life. So deconstruction, it's really not a bad thing, it's not a good thing, it's just a thing. And if you've come in here and you kind of demonized your doubts, I would say do something with your doubts. That you need to process them. But note this, that the enemy wants to deconstruct some things in your life so that ultimately he can destroy your life. But Jesus will always lead you to reconstruct that which has been deconstructed so that he can give you life. So I want you to think about your, your belief system, kind of like this, this Jenga set that I busted up into two pieces. Like some of you, you come in here and like this represents you. You've, um, you've kind of said, okay, I, I am... Um, just a, a, an amalgamation of my upbringing and my experiences. And so like some of you, you you've come into this season of, of young adulthood and you're like, you know what? Um, I, I really should examine if the grace of God is for real. And like you started looking at the grace of God and you're like, I like the grace of God, I'm gonna keep the grace of God. And then other, others of you, you're like, is, is church really, is that essential for me to be a Christian? And so some of you, you you've taken that block and you've examined it and, and you said, yeah, I need to keep that. 
And then others of you, you're like, okay, what about the Bible? And there's some of you that are here like, man, I want the Bible. Like, I've got to have this thing. And then others of you, you're really in a season where you're like, is the Bible really, is it really God's word? And you're trying to decide if you should keep the word of God or the Bible in your life. And then some of you, you treat the, the, even the life of Jesus and his resurrection kind of on par with all of these things. And you're like, man, I don't know, like really virgin birth, raising from the dead, is that really essential for me to be a Christian? And there's many things that make up our belief and our faith. And we are all in some degree or another examining those things one by one and trying to figure out, do I need to keep this? Does this thing work in my life or do I need to lose it? Is it does it, because it doesn't matter in my life. And tonight, I wanna point you to the foundation of Christianity. See, the foundation of Christianity is the resurrection. And if this represents your faith and this represents your life and your belief in all things biblical, all things God, this is your spiritual worldview, and you think you can build a structure separate from the resurrection of Christ, you haven't read the Bible and you misunderstand history. And so tonight, I'm gonna call all of you to build your life and your faith on the resurrection of Christ, that everything rises and falls on this one thing. And if we don't get the resurrection right, then the building blocks of our belief won't matter at all. So, 1 Corinthians 15. When you're looking at a place to really talk about the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. Paul, he's just like talking about Jesus raised from the dead, and, and the resurrection means this, and it means that, and, and he's really just going to give us a strong concentration about what this means in our life, why we can put our trust in the resurrection of Christ, and, and it's just this incredible thing for us to deal with. If you're taking notes, I've titled this message, Reconstruct on the Resurrection, and I want you to see from God's word in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection, it is central, that the resurrection is certain, that the resurrection is critical. And before we leave tonight, I want to point to you one of the most powerful truths of the resurrection, that it's comforting. Paul, he had gone through like this crazy faith journey. If you don't know much about the guy, Paul, like when you talk about deconstruction, he had put all of his eggs, all of his belief blocks on this foundation and he was hating on Jesus and those that were saying, hey, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. And then he meets Jesus, Jesus deconstructs and does a demo job on Paul's belief. And then Jesus, again, like Jesus does, he reconstructs on the resurrection that he is alive and then Paul would go on to give his life as one that was once a terrorist against the church to give his life to take the message of Christ that he's alive to the whole world. And Paul, like he understands what it looks like to go through a crisis of faith and to allow God and Jesus to begin to rebuild on the resurrection. And he goes to this city called Corinth. And Corinth, if you don't know much about biblical history or, or like the geography, Corinth was a crazy city. Like if Vegas and New Orleans had a baby, that's Corinth, all right? Like there's just a lot of crazy going on. And then you have people that are meeting Jesus. And I don't know if you've been following Jesus very long, but you don't just like automatically get to arrive. You know what I'm saying? Like we call this abundant life church, not arrive. Life Church, all right, because we're all in progress, and some of us, like, we're a little bit closer to Jesus than others, and there's just a lot of problems that we have to deal with in our own life. Well, Paul, he's writing to this church because they were going through some crises, if you will, and because they had experienced all kinds of problems in the church. <laughs> 
if you think the church is like a place, like I, I love Mario up here earlier, like, oh, the church, I've just been so loved by the church. Um, and, and a lot of times we can think, oh, the church, everyone's just awesome here. Like, I would just say, like, keep your purse close because it may get stolen tonight. All right, I don't know who's here tonight, you know. Like, this, I'm just kidding, but hopefully not. I, this is a group, what I'm trying to say is this is a group of people that, that are broken, starting with me, that desperately need healing on the inside. I've got mental sickness things. I've got physical sickness things. My kids, they they were in the hospital yesterday. I've gone through death this last weekend. Like We've all come in here with some sort of ailment in some way. In this church that Paul was writing to, like they they had issues. And it shouldn't surprise us when people have issues because we've all got them, right? And so, like, they're going through some crisis of faith, and, and maybe they had, had experienced, like, a deconstruction or a crisis because they had gone through some church hurt. Like, the people in Corinth, they had probably been disappointed by the church. Like, when you read the book of Corinthians, you'll see that they were, they were playing church politics, and, like, some people were getting drunk when they were taking the Lord's Supper. <laughs> kind of laughing because, like, who's showing up at church thinking, hey, let me get some extra wine? Like, it's a kegger. Like, nobody's doing that, Right? But in Corinth, they were. Like, they were taking, you know, the Lord's Supper. That's like the wine and the bread, if you've ever been to church. And, like, they're drinking it in excess, getting drunk. And so, like, people were, they were confused by that. They were disappointed by the church. Maybe you've come in here and and you have some church hurt. Maybe you followed somebody that was really impactful in your life, and then you found out that they were having sex outside of marriage, and it was a scandal. Even though you followed their teaching, and they told you to walk the line. Or maybe you, you grew up in a church that just split and there was all this like venomous things and bitterness and gossip and maybe you have church hurt. Well, the people in Corinth, they had had that. Or, or maybe uh, you've come in here tonight and, and you're going through a little bit of a deconstruction phase because you've been disinformed about who God really is. The people in Corinth, they had this disinformation as well. There was all kinds of beliefs around who God is and who, who he isn't and they misunderstood God. And maybe you've come in here tonight and you think that Christianity is, is, a, is a spiritual lobotomy. That means that you, you cut out your brain and you can't reconcile faith and science and you've been told by people that, that you can't believe in certain things and honor God. And, and so you just kind of say, well, I've got to keep these things in, in two different areas. They're polar opposites. And, and I would just say maybe you had some bad information. And the people in Corinth, they had had some misinformation about who God is. And the people in Corinth, they had also gone through like just like a, like they, they heard about the standards that God had and they just disagreed with them. And so, like, there's a, there's a story in 1 Corinthians where a guy is having sex with his stepmom, but he's like a faithful attender of the church, and everyone knew about it. First of all, ooh, you know what I'm saying? Like, ugh, like, come on, man. And he disagreed with parts of the Bible, and, and he thought that he could still kind of invent this version of Christianity, and more than likely, he left his faith because he just disagreed with some of the expectations that God has. Maybe you've come in here, and you've come across some different things in the Bible, like the, the, the sexual ethic, or maybe you've come across some of the way that the Bible speaks about gender. Maybe you've come in here, and you, and you hear about some of the way that the Bible speaks about an issue that you just kind of disagree with, and you said, you know what, I'm going to deconstruct, and I'm going to doubt that there's even a God because I disagree with what he said. And the people in Corinth, like there was no doubt people that had lived that way. And then also people in Corinth, they just disobeyed God. <laughs> like you read in, the, in the, the whole letter, Paul's like, hey, you, you can't do that and honor God in the same time. And so like they're living this life of disobedience. And, and it's been my experience 
when I talk with people that have left their faith and have deconstructed, that several of them, they just kind of coincidentally did that after they started living with their girlfriend. And they knew what God's standard was laid out in, in the scripture. They said that they had given their life to Jesus, but then they started living with their girlfriend or living with their boyfriend, and all of a sudden, they decided that maybe God isn't real. And part of that, in my, just kind of my theory, is that they felt uncomfortable having to deal with the guilt of a righteous God and his standards. And so they just decided God isn't real because they wanted to disobey that God. And so the people in Corinth, they're all over the map, and maybe they're going through deconstruction, maybe they're going through a crisis of faith, but no doubt they're going through some issues. And so Paul, he's strategically addressing these different things that are going on in this church, and then he just lands the plane, so to speak, in the vein of the resurrection. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. So Paul gives us three big words right here. The gospel, this is the good news. This is the main message of the Bible. And so like Paul, he would say, I, rem I wanna remind you of the most important thing. We've talked about a lot of things, but let me just remind you, this is the main thing. This is the foundation. This is the thing that you received and this is the thing that you stand on. When the Bible says that you stand on something, what that means is that this is the thing you banked your life upon. This is the thing that you believe in. This is your, where your hope is. This is your foundation. And he says, this, I want to remind you of the main message of the Bible that you received, that you have committed to stand upon. And he says, I'm trying to cut through all of the reasons why you would have deconstructed. And I want to remind you of some important things. And he says this, and by which you are being saved. He says, this is the thing that is working in your life. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, the word being the main message of the Bible, unless you believed in vain. And so Paul's saying, he's challenging them. I love this. He's challenging them. He said, did God really begin a good work in you? And if he really began a good work in you, then hold fast to it. He's working in you. Unless, of course, you just kind of believed in vain. He goes on in verse 3, and here's what he says. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. Paul's saying, I didn't make this thing up. I didn't just like go out in some kind of big room that was high and lofty and pontificate for a little while and get some special revelation after I, you know, had some time of fasting. And this, you know, he's like, I didn't do that. I actually, he said, I, I met Jesus. Jesus told me this. And I met with his close followers. They validated this. And I gave it to you. This isn't something of my own invention. I received it. And here's what he received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. That Paul's making it abundantly clear, I need to remind you of what is most important, this is first importance, that Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, and that he rose from the grave. This is the gospel, this is the main message of the Bible. This will cut through your deconstruction. Point number one, if you're taking notes tonight, you could write this down. The resurrection is central. The resurrection is central. Paul, what he's saying is that this is the foundation of all of the building blocks of our belief, that this is what is most important, that the resurrection, it is central to all of Christianity. If you've come in here and you've made Christianity out to be something other than the resurrection as the foundation, you have invented a version of Christianity that is not historically accurate nor biblically true, and I would be careful with that because you're on your way to be an occult leader. You don't want to be on Netflix for that, all right? That's not, that's not your future, okay? 
that central to Christianity is the resurrection. If you wanna know what is most important in the whole Bible, it's Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And the only reason why we're talking about his death and his burial is because the brother rose from the grave. Millions upon billions upon billions have died and been buried, one's risen. And Jesus' resurrection is central. Now, I think a lot of us, when we think about like God and Jesus, we, we oftentimes will leave him locked in a certain time, and then we'll kind of like put our faith in that version of Jesus, and we oftentimes will sell it short, and, um, and, and we just kind of will throw the resurrection out there. It's kind of like, a, it's kind of like an addendum, like, oh yeah, like Jesus, he's amazing, and he was, he was, he's like little sweet baby Jesus. Yeah, and he, he rose from the grave eventually, but, but baby Jesus, you know, and so like in my household, uh, we love Christmas. I don't know if you're a Christmas person, but we love Christmas. Um, and, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were down in the city and hanging out with some young adults, and and my nine-year-old Elizabeth, she's like real matter of fact, and I overhear a conversation that one of our young adult ladies is having with her, and, and she, you know, this young adult girl, and y'all are so sweet, she's trying to connect with my daughter, and she's like, what kind of music do you listen to? And my daughter just, she's real just straight shooting, she just says, Christmas music. <laughs> and, uh, and the young adult's like, oh, like around Christmas time? And my daughter's like, no, all the time. No, and my daughter, that's just her normal, so she's just sharing it, and, you know, this young adult lady's like, oh, that's nice, you know, and uh, anyway, like, we love Christmas, and, and what, I'm, what I'm trying to get to is a lot of you, you love a certain scene or a certain season of Jesus, and you oftentimes will stay locked and focused on Jesus in that scene or that season, and you'll miss out on the most important, you'll miss out on what is central, you'll miss out on the foundation of why Jesus is a big deal. Some of you, you, you'll share about how Jesus has changed your life because he died on the cross, and that's a good thing. We should celebrate Jesus dying on the cross. But when you just kind of throw the resurrection like it's just salt on the stake of the cross, you've misunderstood what is foundational and central to Christianity. What is central to Christianity is that Jesus rose from the grave. The resurrection is the foundation by which we put the building blocks of our belief upon. And what makes Jesus' virgin birth, what makes Jesus' death on the cross significant is that he rose from the grave. So if you're here tonight and you're deconstructing, I would just prompt you to consider reconstructing your faith. And if you're going to begin to reconstruct your faith, you need to reconstruct it on the resurrection. Paul, he goes on and he says this in verse 5. He says, and that, he, he appeared, he's talking about Jesus, that Jesus, again, he died on the cross, according to the scriptures, he was buried, he rose again, and then he says, he appeared to Cephas. Cephas was one of Jesus' best friends. We also know him as a, by another name named Peter. And so he appears to Cephas or Peter, then he appears to the 12. These are like Jesus' closest friends that he did life with for several years. And then it says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Uh, that's just a, the Bible's way of saying they've died he goes on, he says, then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' half-brother, and then to all the apostles, those are kind of like the founding members of the first church, and then in verse 8 he says, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Point number two, if you're taking notes tonight, you can write this down. The resurrection is certain. The resurrection is certain. That Paul, what he's saying is that Jesus, he appeared to many different people at many different times, in many different places. 
Like if Paul was like meeting with some people in Corinth, they're like, yeah, but like, come on, man. How does somebody raise from the dead? He's like, I don't know. It's a mystery. But you can go talk to Tommy. You can go talk to Sarah. You can go talk to John. You can go talk. I mean, you just, he just goes down the list. And there's like, a, there's so many people that he reveals himself. To. I didn't know all of them. You can go talk to them. And he was pointing to the fact that you just go talk to people that actually saw with their own eyes. Now, that's helpful when we're hearing about an eyewitness account, you know, and about a historical account, but, but we're here in, in 2022, and it's like, well, what do you, what do you, what do you, how does that impact me? I can't go see Jesus. I can't go talk to these people. They've all fallen asleep now. Well, here's what I would say to that, that we have a faith that's built in history, and when we're dealing with doubts, we need to go back to the history and do the work of intelligent discovery so that we can figure out, are we just out of our mind and here just wasting our time just to try to feel better about one another? Or is Jesus really who he said he was? And one of the key things that we hang our hat on when it comes to the foundation of our faith is that we are putting our faith not in what men and women believed. We're putting our faith in what men and women saw with their own eyes and testified about. They reported the news, Jesus is alive, and that is the foundation of our faith, and we need to reconstruct on the resurrection. So if you're here and you're doubting, and you're in a season of deconstruction, I just want you to consider the name Habermas. Habermas, you've probably never heard that name before, but a guy named George Habermas, he's done the most extensive research on the resurrection. He lived in the 20th century, and and for um, about 30 years, he collected over 1,400 documents, both Christian and non-Christian that testify, talk about, attend to the resurrection of Jesus. And so he did this comprehensive study, and what he found were several things in which both non-Christian and Christian historians would agree upon. I want to share with you four real quick, four E's. The first one is this, that non-Christians and Christians, historians, they would believe or they would stand upon the historicity of the execution of Jesus. Jesus was a real man, lived in real time, and he was really executed. And so Jesus, he, he died. And people would say, yeah, we, we, we don't dispute that. If somebody dies, there has to be a body. Okay, That shouldn't be a surprise with anybody, okay? If somebody dies, there has to be a body. That's why the second E is really important. The second E that both non-Christians and Christians would agree upon when it comes to the certainty of the resurrection is an empty tomb. That Jesus was laid in a borrowed tomb. There was a stone rolled in front of it. It was guarded by men that were really, really amazing men. These weren't like mall cop Paul Blart guys, all right? These were like tested battle people, okay? And they stood guard, but something happened. It's unexplainable, but it's undeniable. The tomb is empty. And so non-Christians and Christians alike, they're kind of going, okay, well, well how, did, how did that happen? Well, first of all, you need to understand where Jesus was crucified. He was crucified in a town called Jerusalem. And Jerusalem really isn't a great big town. It's not like going into Kansas City and like there's a big geographical region. It's a relatively small town, all things considered. And the reason why that's important is because if Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem and then all the people that were saying that he rose from the dead were in Jerusalem, why wouldn't they just produce the body? If they, if they were like, no, this is a problem, we need, to, we need to kill this movement, just produce the body. But they couldn't find the body. Like, where's the body? 
If you just produce the body, it stops the movement. Everybody goes, no, well, let's hang him in front of everybody. He's dead. He's decaying. But they can't do that. So some people, they'll start thinking, well, you know, um, they, they stole the body. You know, his disciples, they stole the body, and so that's what happened. Um, but, but here's the problem with that. Those that they claimed stole the body all died a martyr's death. Here's a famous quote from history. Liars make bad martyrs. That should make sense, right? If we all made this thing up and then they're boiling us alive, crucifying us upside down, kicking us out to live lonely on an island, to die, eventually one of us is going to crack. But every one of his followers took the news that Jesus is alive to their grave. So what do you do with the empty tomb? Uh, the next thing that they, uh, non-Christians and Christians agree upon is the, is the eyewitness experience. Like, this isn't just like a one person went to this place and, like, had this revelation and he looked in his hat. It's not like this sort of thing. It's not one person went on a spiritual pilgrimage and he had this revelation and he came back and he figured out this, this ninefold path. It's not one person that led this movement. These were many different people that claimed to have eyewitness experiences. And it wasn't this hallucinogen by one person or diffusing a hallucinogen into a big room like this. And we all kind of claim to have this nebulous experience with this vague Jesus. No, these were people who said, I saw him with my own eyes. And when they put a knife to their throat, they said, I can't change what I saw. One of the interesting things about the Bible is like it just kind of tells it like it is. And so um, there was a, 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 a lady that was the first one that actually saw Jesus rose from the grave. Now, all of you ladies, you're like, yeah, that's great. A lady saw Jesus raised from the grave. What's the big deal? Why, why is that a big deal to, to know? Well, uh, this isn't one of those things where, like, you know, like when we watched the whole Johnny Depp and, and, you know, all of that trial and everything, we weren't surprised that the lady was there. You know, we weren't like, what's a lady doing there testifying? That is so like, no one listens to ladies in court. No, we don't do that, right? Because women, you are very, very intelligent and capable, probably more than us. And so anyway, in our culture, it wouldn't be surprising if a woman testified in a court of law. But in this culture, in this culture, women weren't allowed to testify in court. Women's testimony wasn't accepted or really even given attention. So if you were trying to make up a story, like savior of the world story, like forgiveness of sins, like if you don't put your faith in this guy, you're, you're going to be judged by an almighty God. If you're trying to make up that kind of story, you're not making up that story on the backbone of the women in society. You're trying to find the most influential men in society and convince them to try to give airtime to your story. But the scripture just simply tells it like it is. And I think God's doing a couple of things. First of all, he's elevating women. And if you're here and you grew up in a faith tradition that, that suppresses women, that's not godly at all. Male and female created equal. And God, he's elevating women. And then he's also saying, that this is just simply how it happened. This is not made up. And so you have to do something with the eyewitness account. And the other thing that Habermas gives attention to is the explosion of the church. The explosion of the church. Like the church spread like wildfire. And what's crazy is when you read about what happened is that you had these men and, and women that, that saw their best friend Jesus crucified. And, what, what you, and when you read it, like they were all like, 
at one point, they're like, give us a sword, we'll, we'll go to battle for you. But when they saw their leader be crucified, they all ran like a bunch of cowards. But then three days later, they saw their friend raised from the grave, and within a month and, and some changed time, you have this guy that is preaching to the authorities that crucified his best friend, and he's calling them out. He's saying that Jesus is the Son of God, whom you crucified, and you need to repent or change your mind, change your living, and you need to get right with God. What makes somebody go from coward to courageous? A resurrected, a resurrected Christ does. That the foundation of the building blocks of all of our belief is the resurrection of Christ. And so if you're here and you're in a season of deconstruction or doubt, I would call you to reconstruct on the resurrection. These are the facts. This is the legitimacy of our faith history, that you would consider the certainty in history and you would respond accordingly. And so Paul, he says, like these people, they saw Jesus raised from the grave with their own eyes. He goes on in verse 12 and he says this, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? This is kind of the issue that Paul's trying to address in this section. We'll come to that here in a minute. But he goes on in verse 13, he says this, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He's saying like, all that we've done, it's a waste of time. If Christ is not raised from the grave, we should, we should go to Andy's, get some ice cream. We should all kind of buy a boat, show up at the lake, and we should hang out on Tuesday nights doing that. We shouldn't come in here. We shouldn't sing songs. We shouldn't listen to messages. And everything that you've done, every sacrifice you've made, every faith thing you've done, if there is no resurrection, Paul would say, it was vain. You wasted your time. Even if we're in verse 15, uh, we are even found to be misrepresenting God if there is no resur resurrection. He said, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. He's saying we're all liars if there is no resurrection. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And so if you have some sort of peace of, of mind and of heart that you stand right before God, but there is no resurrection, then you're not right with God. You better try something else. He goes on to verse 18, he says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. That, that when you saw your grandmother, you said, I'll see you in eternity, Grandma. That's not true if there is no resurrection. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, note this, we are of all people most to be pitied. Point number three, the resurrection is critical. The resurrection is critical. What Paul's saying here is that if you follow Jesus, but you claim that he didn't raise from the dead, Paul's saying, I pity you. Like if he was from the south, he would say, oh, bless your heart. You're so sweet, but you're just, you're just dumb as a box of rocks, you know? He's saying, if there is no resurrection, we've wasted our life. See, if you come in here and you try to build your life on some spiritual ideology apart from the resurrection of Christ, like if this block, uh, this, if, this, if these these blocks right here, if this represents your belief, and you say, well, I'm, I'm just gonna pull out the resurrection, it's all gonna fall. If you try to remove the foundation, everything falls. And what I mean by everything, everything falls. And so if you've come in here and you found things like, like imagine this was in your building blocks of belief, and you found things like I found God's grace. And some of you, you would, if we sang Amazing Grace, you'd be in tears. 
If you've experienced God's grace, I know that I've experienced God's grace. That God, he, he loves me. He's given me grace. He's given me a, a new heart, a fresh start, a new day. Praise God. But if there is no resurrection, then there is no God's grace. There's been other times in my life where I've experienced biblical community. I'm talking like, like, like I've loved guys in appropriate ways, like my own soul, the Bible says. And these are my brothers. And like, how do you explain that sort of like, like this brotherhood where I'm like, man, these are the boys. I'm, these are my ride or dies. These are, I'm going to lock arms with these guys. I'm going to run after the gates of hell. How do you explain that sort of mission, that sort of battalion, that sort of locker room mentality where there's, there's a, a depth and a richness in that relationship? Well, if there is no resurrection, then those relationships are built upon something that's fake. Or maybe you've come in here and you're something like me. You can look back in your life and, and you can see how God has given you the tools you needed to give forgiveness to somebody that's hurt you greatly. And I think about the forgiveness that God's given me towards my dad. And there's been times in my life where I've been like, I, I, don't, I can't forgive him. I'm so bitter and so angry about what he's done, how he walked out on the family and, and all of those things, you know. And, but then I go to God. And I'm like, God, you're rich in mercy. I need a dose of that mercy. But if there is no resurrection, if I remove that foundation, then the forgiveness and the restitution I have with my old man, that's nothing. Others of you, you come in here and, and you've given your life in a large part of your life, to study this book. Like if you're anything like me, you, you wake up regularly just to eagerly get into this word because you believe that the God that, that made lightning bugs, the God that paints sunsets, he disclosed himself in these pages. And if there is no resurrection then I've wasted my life studying this book. If there is no resurrection, then I've wasted my life trying to teach this book. If there is no resurrection, then none of it matters. The resurrection is critical. And if you're here tonight and you're deconstructed, I would just urge you to reconstruct on the resurrection of Christ that you need to see your need for Jesus in your life. You, you need to see that, that you have to put your, your faith and trust in him as the resurrected Savior. And that is the foundation that we build our life upon. That is the security. When we put our faith and trust in that, that impacts everything that God has for us. Paul, he continues just to talk about the resurrection over and over and over all throughout this chapter. We jump down to verse 50, and he, he's kind of landing the plane, so to speak, and he just says this, I tell you this, I'll tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He says, behold, I'll tell you a mystery. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Point number four, and finally, if you're taking notes tonight, you can write this down. The resurrection is comforting. The resurrection is comforting. Again, Paul, he's, kind of com- he's clearing up some of the confusion in this church because they believe that like Jesus, some of them were like, yeah, Jesus rose from the grave, but we're, we're not going to raise from the grave. And Paul's like, no, 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 you, you misunderstood. If Jesus rose from the grave, you put your faith in Jesus, you will rise too. You cannot make it to heaven if you don't become like Jesus. The only way you become like Jesus is putting your faith in Jesus and let him do that work in you. And he's saying that when you put your faith in the resurrected son of God, one day you will be resurrected too. That you'll change this broken body, this perishable, mortal body for something beautiful, imperishable, and immortal. That when you understand the resurrection and you begin to consider its implications, It is one of the most comforting truths that we stand upon. And tonight, I'm calling you to reconstruct on the resurrection. There's a dear friend of mine from back in Louisiana. We did ministry together with high school students. So when you're working with teenagers, you you do like ugly Christmas stuff. You can see us right here. It's a picture of us. And so um, that's Bobby. Bobby's got ornaments in his beard, y'all. That's a Duck Dynasty beard, all right? That's a Louisiana stuff. I mean, that beard is down here, and then that's your boy wearing an ugly sweater. And so uh, you can pull that down. But Bobby, man, Bobby's one of my guys. I, I did, did ministry with Bobby for, for several years, and God really used him in my life. One of my favorite things about Bobby was um, he would, uh, every, every year about this time of year, he would take us on a mystery trip. And he called it a mystery trip because we took graduated seniors on like this fun senior trip for seven days, and he would begin to drop clues a few weeks leading up to the trip because we didn't tell the seniors where they were going. We said, hey, it's a mystery. And we would go on these wild adventures all throughout the nation for seven days, and we'd give them a clue every day about what was next. We would hop on airplanes and fly to New York City, and we would be in Times Square with these seniors. And then we'd say, okay, next day we're going to get on a train, and we're going to go up to Albany, New York, and we're going to kayak on the Hudson, and then we're going to get a bus and go to the Adirondack and do zip lines in the Adirondack of upstate New York. And then from there, we're going to get back on a train, we're going to go to Boston, and we're going to play a big manhunt in Boston where we're going to hide Bobby somewhere in Boston, and then we're going to split up in teams, and we're going to find the Bobby. And then we're going to go see a Red Sox game. And then after that, I mean, it was just awesome. Like just this mystery trip. And what he was trying to help them see is that the world is big. It's way bigger than northwest Louisiana. And life is a mystery. And he was trying to help them see that, that whatever comes your way, sometimes it'll be scary. Sometimes it'll be risky. But if you have a relationship with God, you'll always be up for the adventure. Paul, he talks about this mystery in 1 Corinthians. And the mystery he talks about is, I can't explain how it all works, but because Jesus is alive, you will live forever if you put your faith in him. It's a mystery. I got a phone call a couple of weeks ago from Bobby on Memorial Day, and he said, hey, I just wanted to call and let you know I've got stage four cancer. He begins to tell me it's metastasized and it's spread in my body. And I really don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be difficult. And I sat down and started crying and <laughs> just started processing that with him. And, and I said, Bobby, you know what today is? And he said, no, no, what, what's today? I said, today would have been the day 
that we would have had our first day on our mystery trip. And I asked him, I said, would you remind me why we called it a mystery trip? And he begins to tell me again why we called it a mystery trip, much like I shared with you just a few minutes ago. And I told him, because of your faith in God, he will see you through this big adventure. Bobby died on Saturday night. I'm going to preach his funeral this weekend. And if there is no resurrection, what do you tell a person like that with integrity? See you on the other side, I hope. Bobby faithfully served God for decades of his life. What do you tell a guy like that? You wasted your life. But if there is a resurrection, then no sacrifice he made was too small. If there is a resurrection, then his cancer doesn't have the last word. Because there is no cancer and there is no problem that a good resurrection can't fix. And so tonight, if you're deconstructing, I would urge you to reconstruct and to begin with the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. God, I thank you just for this opportunity to open up your word. God, I thank you that your word doesn't leave us um, in some kind of wishful thinking but that you tell us that you've come to give us hope. And hope is not like, well, I, I hope that works out, but it's, it's a steadfast, certain, as certain as I am standing on this stage, I can be certain that I can have salvation in you. Because you rose from the grave, everything else that you said about yourself is true. And so, God, I just thank you that we don't have to be dumb I thank you that we don't have to take off our ability to have reason and logic and look through the lens of history and study the evidence. But I thank you that you've given us a faith that's been under great scrutiny. I thank you that you've given us a faith that was advanced through the sacrifice of men and women who gave their life that the church we have today has grown in the field that has been watered by the blood of the martyrs. And so, God, if there's somebody here that's like, I don't know about all this, I don't know if it's true, God, I just pray that you would show them what they need, that you would continue to be patient with them, and that they would do their due diligence to deal with the questions that they may be facing. God, you would minister to us in a way that only you can thank you for the hope that I have to be able to talk to my friend Bobby again someday. And God, I pray that all of us would be certain that we could have that same hope as well. In Christ's name I pray.